Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening from an unusually warm, be it read three or four degrees over freezing South Dakota today. <laughs> right now, we are thankful for the cold weather to a degree because if it, if it warms up too fast, all the snow, and I mean we're talking feet of snow, are going to melt all of a sudden and then we're going to have a flood. So we don't want a flood, so we want it to warm up slowly. I'm actually not complaining at all, but I watch my kids are trying to run outside in, in short sleeves and stuff like that because it's so warm out here, right? Uh, you know, compared to what winter normally is. So yeah. I'm not com- I'm not complaining at all. When it comes to the summertime, I'll be coming on here saying it's too hot. <laughs> so. program, the phone number to be a part of the program, if you'd like to join us, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. You're on Ask Noah. Good, good afternoon. Hi, Noah. How's it going? Hi, Steve. Hey there. Hello. We're doing well. Uh, okay. Um, so uh, I have a question on a little bit of Linux uh, network security. I have now, because of, of my son's prodding, I have put a Minecraft server uh, in my house. I managed to get an old uh, HP ProLiant uh, server from work when they were throwing it out. Okay. And I put it as a KVM. Uh, KVM host, and I put on top of it um, an Ubuntu 2204 VM, which I've now installed a Minecraft server on. Um, my son wants me to open that up so that uh, my sister can come and play on it as well. Mm. Now I've been I looked at I looked at the router that we've got and uh, provided by our ISP, and I can port forward just the Minecraft port to the ser- to that virtual machine. Good. But I have never, uh, I, I have no idea on how to secure the box any more than that to allow bad, to not allow bad actors to come along and harass me. Yeah. Where, where do I start? That's a great question. See, where would you start? Uh, the first thing that I would do is I would, if, if it was for my, so for example, my, my kids and Noah's kids are friends and if they wanted to play together, I would say, Hey Noah, just, uh, jump on my tail scale network because then I don't have to um, connect to the internet and they'll be able to find each other. Right. Mm. Like I don't have to port forward because like you said, their Minecraft servers on the internet attract bad guys like flies. (laughs) They're going to pound on like from experience, I can tell you they will pound, they will knock on every door that they think they can get into on there. Um, And I had one experience where this was an old one, but, uh, there was a flaw in Java, and lots of people talked about this at the time. Someone got in and installed a crypto uh, miner or whatever. It was a minor thing because I had a VM and didn't give it tons of resources. So it was like, eh, whatever. Um, but, you know, you have to mitigate for flaws in Java and in Minecraft itself. 
And that can be difficult. Like your thought of, hey, I'm just gonna open up one port, it's a good idea, right? That that limits your attack vector quite a bit. But how do you, there, there's a bunch of things you could do like fail to ban and um, SSH guard and stuff like that where uh, essentially you can try and lock out anybody that, that isn't your, hmm, your sister or known people. But I probably would try to start with something like Tailscale. And again, we're not a sponsor. We're not even, uh, I don't even know if, if Noah cool. uses it, but they're, they're free for, you know, 20 devices or whatever. And it's essentially, I put it on my wife's phone and it's literally just like, hey, uh, you click on a link and it pops up an authorization for your account and you, you put it, put that in and then the device is, is on there kind of transparently. And so I would look at doing that. What would you do, Noah? Who's your ISP, if you don't mind sharing? My ISP, um, right now I'm up in, uh, in Canada. My ISP is uh, Bell. Okay. Do you know if they allow multiple IP addresses, public IP addresses, or they give you just one? Right now, as far as I can see, just one. I uh, I'm only they're getting pretty one. Stingy. I haven't tried to do mm. much. Uh, yeah, they they they're not most the most open. I was surprised that I was actually able to do port forwarding properly. <laughs> so. Steve's answer, essentially what he's telling you is instead of opening the front door and welcoming the world into your Minecraft server, he's suggesting you just give a key to your back door to one of your relatives, which is absolutely a great way to go. And and if you look at how any corporation works, that's oftentimes what they'll do. They have two offices. They almost never open stuff up to the Internet. They create an encrypted tunnel. They connect the two offices and Bob's your uncle. You're good to go. So it's absolutely a great way to go. Tailscale would be a great way to go. OpenVPN be a great way to go. Tink would be a great way to go. All of those things will kind of accomplish the same thing. One other idea for consideration. What you, another way that you could handle it is you could have your incoming traffic come in on your well, I guess I should ask this. What kind of router do you have? Because you said you looked at it and you were surprised to find port forwarding. It's it's provided by uh, Bell, so it's it's a semi powerful one because I have one point five gigabit down, one gig up, so mm -hmm. it's actually a, a semi powerful. But beyond that, I don't remember the model off the top of my head. I'm not sitting beside it now. Do you know if it supports a bridge mode at all? You got to be very careful with that uh, because Bell, uh, I know from experience, having worked quite a bit with them, mm -hmm. uh, living in Canada 40 years, they will try everything to tell you that it's your fault. And so even <laughs> if the even if it supports bridge mode, uh, they will very heavily co-opt you into not using that if they can at all get away yeah. with it. So I'm going to say this. Thing. I did look, I did, I did. Well, I did look at it originally when I got it because before that I was running my own PFSense box and mm. had my own network before mm -hmm. I got their box. I did not see a bridge mode on their router, on their on their device. Without the ability to swap out the router, your hands are kind of tied and your choices really are limited to either some sort of tunneling device that runs on the inside of the network or the ability to open up to, to the to to the wide world just going off of the pf sense just for a second so that is just if nothing else is a thought experiment or somebody else finds themselves in the same boat one thing you could do or one thing somebody could do if you have access to a professional grade router like a pf sense or an open sense or something like that you could create two networks on the inside one network handles your quote-unquote public servers and you create firewall rules that say when traffic is coming in from the outside, they can only talk to this little island that sits over here, this little subnet that isn't, that isn't allowed to pass traffic to the rest of the network. 
And in doing so, one of the things that you would be able to do is you would allow people without having to set up a connection on both ends to enter the Minecraft server. And even if that box got popped, they wouldn't necessarily be able to access anything else on your network. So I throw that out there more as more as a an idea for, hey, here is what the entire landscape might look like. But given your situation, given the fact that you're in another country and Steve is going to know far more about ISPs in Canada than I would, and given the fact that you're, you're, you're using their router, really you're probably your best option is to have some sort of tunnel in between your, your friend's place and your place. Okay. Um, so I'm, I know I've heard all, all, a lot of the ads for Tailscale, would the software for Tailscale be on? Would I put that onto the Minecraft VM itself, or would I put that yes. on a separate box or on the the base host as well? On the Minecraft server itself. Okay, I put I put the endpoint there. Okay, mm-hmm. you you could you can First, so not- and again, not I'm not chilling for it, but you can also say so. For example, I put mine on the PFSense uh, box and then toggle the little thing saying this can be a gateway for the network. And so mm. what that means is that okay. instead of, you know, you, you have an entryway into your into your network, um, and this, is, this could be effective for you for a couple of reasons. You could put it, you could dedicate a VM just to, uh, just to tail scale. And the advantage here is, of course, like you don't affect this by taking the Minecraft server down or anything like that for updates. And so... It, it's an option to use that as a jumping point, or you could put it directly on the Minecraft server it's, itself, depending on what you wanted to do. Okay, I could see, and that would that would also, if I did it as an as endpoint like that, I could also allow my sister then to have direct access to my Plex server and stuff mm. like that on the inside as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That would okay, that sounds like a much better thing. Okay. Um, can I have one more question? Sure. So. Um, Okay, no, so this is going back a long time ago, I've, I'm remembering correctly, uh, you and your wife used to have an app on your phone that would um, be able to show each other uh, where you were going, what your destination mm-hmm. were, what your progress was in traveling. Yes. Um, but you dropped that because I believe some of secu- uh, security or privacy concerns. Yes. Did you ever find a replacement for it? I did. So the app that you're talking about was Life360, and what came to my attention later than I than I care to admit is that the parent company of Life Life360 shares data with auto insurance companies, which, I mean, so I'll just park that for a second. The app that replaced it is something called OwnTrax, and OwnTrax is completely self-hosted and allows very much the same idea. So you can set things like, the big thing for us was alerts. So we're both busy people, and so who's picking the kids up from school? I own my own company, so I'm very much capable of saying, hey, somebody else take the service call. I have to go get my kids. But I have to know within like 15 or 20 minutes, like, hey, she's not going to be able to get there. So the big thing for us was being able to have triggered alerts to say she's not within 15 minutes of the school she's not going to be able to get there or she's very much on her route and has passed these predetermined landmarks to tell me she's on her way to go pick up the kids i don't have to and vice versa great okay perfect thank you very much you bet Give us a call back anytime. Okay. 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Steve, you want to get in some feedback? Absolutely. Our first email comes in from, scroll back up here, from Baku. Baku writes in and says, hi, guys. 
Here's a question. Is it possible to block outgoing network traffic from a smart TV via consumer-grade router like a TP-Link Archer series? A friend who recently read some of my silly thing called automatic content recognition asked me this question, and I thought, why not throw this question your way? He has an Archer C7 router and a D-Link DIR2680. Can smart TVs be firewalled via these consumer-grade routers? What say you, gentlemen? Steve, your thoughts. So I took a poke around. I, I think that I knew the answer beforehand. Um, so this is a complicated question because we didn't get an answer to, are we blocking all outbound traffic? Are we mm. blocking, like, is the smart TV just accessing stuff on the land or is it trying to go to Netflix? Like, we don't really know. Mm -hmm. Assuming that it's trying to go to Netflix, the answer is no, you really can't. Uh, I, I poked around at both of these guys and essentially they can do full device blocking but you can't block specific domains and and things of that nature and uh, i even poked around on some of the forums and it just seems like it's not really possible they're not flexible enough to do that so the only thing i might add there is so i think you're you're talking about stock uh you're talking about stock firmware right correct so i believe ddwrt the Archer C7 is supported with DDWRT. So you might consider, if you can't do it with the stock firmware, what you might consider doing is looking at maybe some alternative open source firmware that might provide some of those options. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is, like you say, there's not enough information here to really determine this, but if you didn't need, like, I don't use the smart portion of the TVs. I don't like the idea that the ARM processor effectively doubles in processing power every few years, and so I buy this eight $900,000 device that's essentially becomes out of date in two years. I prefer to buy a display device to do one thing, and that is to display a good picture. And then I'll add on whatever I want to add on. And if today that's an NVIDIA Shield, and if tomorrow it's a Vero 4K, and if the day after that it's a Raspberry Pi, whatever. Um, that's the way I prefer to run my TV. So if you, but, but it is getting harder and harder and harder to purchase a TV, a smart TV, or TV that isn't a smart TV. So if you find yourself in that boat and say, hey, every once in a while I want to, you know, update the firmware, but past that I don't want to do it. One of the things one could do is go in and manually set some of the IP settings so that it doesn't know how to get out of your network. Um, of course, that's going to break any of the smart functionality if you're using any of it. Our second email comes in from Corey. Corey writes in and says, hi, guys. I look forward to your show every week. I honestly think I've listened to every single episode. Whatever happened to the audacity situation? A while back, I heard bits and pieces of the story, and I'm just now reading Wikipedia's summary, which begins with, in May of 2021, after the project was acquired by Muse Group, I would love to hear your thoughts, and if you continue to use audacity or something else for editing audio. Corey. So, Steve, what uh, what's your takeaway from the Audacity situation? So, for the people that don't know, I'll, I'll try to summarize this pretty quickly. So, um, Audacity, as you probably ascertained, is an open source audio processing thing. I use it. I'm pretty sure Noah uses it. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially what happened was a company came along called Muse Group, and they, they bought out a, the Audacity company for lack of a better way of putting it and they wanted to go ahead and put telemetry in it with the idea that um we need to know how many people are using this and what our user base is and like it's all the standard um disclaimers for putting in telemetry right however the uh what was uncovered during this is, is a bunch of language that came out in the terms of service including uh 
that they would turn over any relevant information to law enforcement and all of that kind of standard disclaimer. And that began mm. to raise people's backs up because, well, what exactly are you getting from the telemetry? Like, what kind of thing would you get that you might actually turn over to law enforcement? So there was uh, kind of a big tempest in a tea kettle sort of thing with around that. And then a little while later, they established a, a CLA, which is a, a contributor license agreement. And this this was kind of a slap in the face because usually people are making a CLA if they want to do something like maintain the ability to change the license of, of the software or they want to maintain the actual rights to the commits. So you might sign a CLA so that the company itself will accept your commit, but they get to actually own it because the way that open source works is, for example, in the kernel, it'd be basically impossible for them to ever relicense it because it requires uh, either 100% or like 99% of the contributors to actually agree to the license change. So a CLA is normally a precursor to something uh, where they're going to do something that the broader audience might not approve of. And turns out that they began talking about dual licensing the code. Uh, that was kind of unhappy times for the open source community. And then there was also some small controversy over the fact that they put in a, a clause saying that people under 13 years old can't use their software. Mm. And that was a, to me, that was a silly thing. Like, why are you going to put that in here? Like, this is not a mature software. There's nothing about audio editing where it doesn't come with any samples or anything like that. Why are you putting an age limit in there? Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of these sorts of things ended up culminating in um, essentially someone forked the project. There's There's been several forks, but the, the largest one is one that's called Tenacity. And so there's a, a pretty popular fork out there called Tenacity that removes the all of that all of that stuff and maintains the the original GPL2 licensing. I still use Audacity so far as I understand it the end result of all of this was the telemetry is off by default and it's optional so you don't have to turn it on. I'm over 13 so didn't really care a whole lot about that and i i just really it comes down to i'm lazy and so if you're not lazy you might consider using tenacity probably better to support the community run um you know the more community oriented projects um but yeah your your question directly do you still use audacity yes i do um still works it's a lean mean cutting machine i like it works great i would not be opposed to any of the forks either i use both actually um really and only only went to Tenacity because there was something that Audacity actually like staunchly refused to do. Okay. I can't remember what it was, but my desktop uses Audacity and my laptop that comes with me everywhere uses Tenacity. Interesting. But you don't remember what the thing was, huh? I don't. I was doing something with uh, my Christmas tree audio over the wintertime and whatever mm -hmm. it was, I like it just didn't work. And sure. like it would crash. It either crashed or something like that. And I was like, okay, well... I'm definitely not going to go to my desktop and then run downstairs to the tree <laughs> in the back to, you know, like, so I just installed Tenacity and it worked right away, like no crashes. So I don't know what it was, but. Well, if you find out, yeah. bring it back to the show, would you? <laughs> From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of March 26th, 2023. 
Here's the Linux and open source news. SUSE has appointed a new CEO. Dirk Peter Van Leeuwen was at Red Hat for almost two decades in sales, marketing, and operations. He most recently served as Senior Vice President and General Manager of North America. Regatta OS 23, codenamed Honeycomb, has been released. Regatta is a Brazilian distro based on OpenSUSE and focuses on desktop and gaming needs. OpenMandriva LX 23.03 has been released with Linux 6.2 kernel and KDE Plasma 5.27. The lead developer behind Ubuntu Unity has announced another project of his called Blend OS, which aims to replace all Linux distributions. BlendOS is an Arch-based immutable distro which supports multiple package managers. And the Gen 2-based Porteus Kiosk has released version 5.5. Microsoft continues to develop their CBL Mariner Linux distribution with new packages and updates. The latest release of Mariner has added 13 more Python packages, 18 more Perl packages, and a slew of other updates, including Rust, Golang, NPM, GNU PG2, Emacs, Sudo, Vim, Redis, and more. After six months of hard work, the GNOME project has released GNOME version 44, codename Kuala Lumpur, and GREP 3.10 has been released. In AI news, Databricks, a San Francisco-based startup, has released open-source code that they say companies can use to create their own chatbots along the lines of OpenAI's ChatGPT. And speaking of ChatGPT, are you one of those users who just can't wait to have AI on your Linux terminal? Well, then Shell GPT is just for you. Shell GPT uses ChatGPT to turn your plain English commands into completed tasks. And on the topic of ChatGPT, due to a bug in Redis, ChatGPT had a data leak where approximately 1.2% of their users with Plus accounts may have had personal data revealed. The data would have included email addresses and recent chat titles. In security news, CISA releases the open source tool called Untitled Goose Tool to detect malicious activity in Azure, Azure Active Directory, and Microsoft 365 environments. Google Project Zero has released information that many enterprise versions of Linux were not backporting security fixes into their trees. After the 90-day responsible disclosure window has passed with no update from Red Hat, Project Zero has decided to go public with the issues. And lastly, U.S. Senators Gary Peters and Josh Hawley have reintroduced bipartisan legislation to help protect federal and critical infrastructure systems by strengthening the security of open-source software. And when I was at scale a few weeks ago, one of the things that stood out to me was the absolutely spectacular performance of KDE Mobile. And a big portion of that was seeing it in person. And so Devin Lynn from the KDE community inspired me with their impressive demo. And so I've been following uh, Graffini OS since the Copperhead OS days. And we'll link you to podcast.asknowashow.com slash 71, where we kind of describe what happened. And what I would describe is the no less than heroic actions that the developer took to protect the integrity of his software and signing key and and users' privacy and, and, and security. But over the past few years, um, I have been kind of moving towards a different methodology for using mobile devices. And so I've divided my, my mobile devices into three devices, my work phone, my personal phone, and what I'm calling a companion device. Now, the work phone is essentially what you might expect from your employer, what you are expected to have in the day-to-day -day environment. We live in a world where your boss will tell you, be on this mobile platform, download this app, so on and so forth. There is a line to which I'm willing to capitulate to that because I acknowledge that I live in a world and we have things that we're going to do, but I stop short of just 
telling employers or banks or anybody else, yeah, download whatever software you want onto my, my device, become an administrator of my device and take over it. Uh, it's there for your convenience. And so what I've done is I've moved myself first off of mobile entirely. I ported all of my phone numbers over to jmp.chat. These guys are absolutely fantastic when it comes to VoIP service. They expose all of their calls available via Jabber. So you can get the calls via XMPP or you can take them via SIP. And then they expose all of the messaging either via Snickernet, via XMPP, or via Matrix. And so I have been playing with that for about the last year now, and I've, I think I have it dialed into where I'm really happy with it. So for about the last six months or so, I've lived entirely off my laptop. I stopped carrying my phone with me, and I just used my laptop and signed into the requisite accounts because at that point, all I was needing was an IP address to be able to get all of my communication out. When I saw what KDE Plasma Mobile is capable of and the incredible progress they've made over the last year, it inspired me to try to take a run at moving myself now from a laptop back onto mobile devices, but a mobile device that I control. So there's a couple of limitations I've imposed on myself. So data only from the carrier. So I'm going to get a SIM card, I'm going to put it in, but I'm not going to do any of my communication through the carrier's network. Data only. No phone calls, no SMS. All of that is going to be delivered through SIP, through XMPP, or through Matrix. The second thing is... I want it workable on a mobile device or a laptop. I don't want to have to be married to a mobile device. So any service application thing requirement that says it has to be mobile, I outright reject and just won't use that thing. And again, having lived on a laptop for about the last year, I think that's fairly doable. So I've ordered a couple of devices to try to answer these three questions. The first is, are we at a point where Graffini OS can be used as a daily driver for a general purpose work phone? My bar there is when I walk into a normal work environment and everybody else was jumping on conference calls and sending emails and doing these sorts of things, am I going to be able to fit in? I think largely it's going to work, but I expect to run into some issues when it comes to uh, some proprietary applications or things that rely on Google services. So we'll kind of see how that goes. But for the most part, I want to, when my boss says install this thing, I want to be able to try to do that on a device that I own. And that means I'm going to need the ability to run APK, so on navigation, make calls, so on and so forth. The second device that I'm going to try to run is on my personal communication site. So in this case, I don't really care about apps. Really, I want to be able to make and receive SIP calls. I want to make and receive XMPP mess or send and receive XMPP messages, send and receive matrix messages. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to accomplish that with uh, Postmarket OS on a OnePlus 6. And the third question I'm going to attempt to answer is, are we at a point where KDE Plasma Mobile can be used as a companion device? So maybe it doesn't quite hit what could be used for personal communication actually as a phone phone. I don't know. I suspect it could. But if I'm wrong, could it at least be used as a companion device, basically replacing kind of a laptop? And so that I'm going to attempt to, to, to do with the Lenovo Duet uh, running. And so I started my companion device with Sailfish OS. Absolutely stellar interface, works really, really well, but there is a lack of support for modern software. Currently, I'm using the GPD Pocket, which I'm 100% happy with from a from the standpoint of can I do what I want to do? I can make and receive calls. I can make and receive messages. I can run every application that I run on my regular laptop because, oh, yeah, it is a regular laptop. It's just one that happens to fit in my pocket. But there are some drawbacks. Notifications, for example. Once I close the thing, I'm not getting notified that there are new messages, calls, so on and so forth. So it basically has to be up and running all the time, and that's not always terribly practical. The other thing is I would like to have a slightly smaller footprint. As 
I, always, I tell people that my GPD Pocket is the laptop when it's socially unacceptable to have a laptop involved. And that's true. And it works for me 99.9% of the time. But every once in a while, it strikes me as a little awkward to unfold and be pecking away at this little, obviously little pocket computer type thing. And when everybody else is just on their phones. So I'm going to try to use it as a third party companion device, but one that allows me to have access to all of the software and features that I require. Things like Lux, things like KeePassXC, things like being able to SSH with YubiKeys and, and so on and so forth. And so having, I will be able to, I suspect, be able to do all of those things with a companion device with the Lenovo Duet, uh, Duet running uh, like post-market OS. And so we're going to give that a shot and, and see what happens, largely thanks to all of the software that's available from Discover uh, that's compiled for ARM. It's essentially going to work. And so... As I went through that journey, one of the things I started with is I'm looking for software that I can start from the ground up. If I had an empty device, what tools and resources would I want available to me on a mobile platform? And I came across a group called Simple Mobile Tools. You can learn more at simplemobiletools.com. And it's a group of simple open source Android apps that don't have ads, don't have unnecessary permissions, and are customizable. And so this group allows you to customizably have widgets without ads, without unnecessary permissions, and a lot of other benefits. The creators wanted to create an app that didn't have all of the things that they hated in traditional phone apps. And so they found themselves purchasing brand new phones and it coming with all sorts of software that was not helpful. One of the developers said famously that he doesn't want to have to think when he launches his camera app, when it starts asking for permissions and all of the rest of it, it just seems obnoxious. So simple mobile tools eliminates all of that. They focus on not having a poor user experience, not having the ability to customize the apps and feel like it's, everything just works right out of the box. You can get simple mobile tools. They're available on Google Play or it's available on F-Droid. And again, you can learn more at their website, simplemobiletools.com. Since our time with Endless OS, both Steve and I have become kind of enamored with immutable operating systems. And as part of that, you have reached out to us and said you have an interest in immutable operating systems as well. And so we thought we'd take a little bit of time to talk about why somebody might want to look more seriously at using an immutable operating system day to day. So I'll start with like if you're looking for context, the the, the basic way that I can think of to describe an immutable operating system that would be uh, easy to digest for most people is the idea of an appliance. So when you have like the Steam Deck, for example, you can just go into the user configuration, click reset, and somehow it turns back to the way that you pulled it out of the box. There's one minor exception of that, but that's neither here nor there. So that is the basic premise of how, what an immutable operating system does or how you might perceive it. But Steve, could you talk a little bit about what an immutable operating system is by definition and how it works technologically? Sure. I mean, there's a couple of different ways that um, immutable operating systems work. The one that I'm most familiar with is based on OS tree. Um, as far as I understand, your Steam Deck uh, observation is not based on OS tree. And we'll, we'll get into that just briefly in a bit. But uh, an immutable operating system is essentially an OS that's in read-only mode. Um, what is important about immutable operating systems is that they're deployed what's called atomically. And so this means that instead of like updating package by package, like if you run apt update and you watch 500 packages go one by one, uh, that is not how it happens. An atomic update means that the OS image 
is replaced. So all of the packages or all of the all of the binaries on the system are replaced at once during one operation. So you're going to get either a fully complete or a fully failed update. And this is good because uh, oftentimes immutable operating systems will keep different copies of the OS because it's deployed almost like a firmware version. And so if an operation fails, what will happen is it will reboot itself and just go back to the section of the hard drive that contained a good known working copy. So that's that's basically how and like what an immutable operating system is. To your point about SteamOS. Mm-hmm. So SteamOS is an Arch-based distribution that, as far as I know, is not based on OS Tree because they give you the ability to go enter dev mode and turn off the read-only, mm. like the read-only section, which is not how OS Tree works. So um, OS Tree is used in things like Endless. It's also in Flatpaks. It's in Fedora. It's in CoreOS. Um, and several others. I was trying to figure out what Ubuntu Core is made of. I couldn't I couldn't easily determine how they're doing their uh, immutability. But uh, oh, so OS Tree, what it does is it it works very similar to Git. Uh, they they kind of claim that they're Git for operating systems, and so that what that means is they have branches and then a commit version, and you can check out a specific commit version of your operating system, and it'll just go pull that exact snapshot down and, and blast it onto your hard drive. How does, how does it, how is, how are they, how is it typically immutable, uh, typically achieved when you're looking at doing that at, you know, and, and trying to make one thing that you can't write to and one thing that you can write to, how do we do that? So ultimately we use a technology that allows you to have layered file systems. So this is one of the ways that containers actually work. So container has some sort of layered file system where uh, it tracks all of the different changes in that happen in a container in various layers. So when you do like a podman pull or a docker pull on something, you'll see a bunch of layers that are being pulled down. And all of those are individual changes to the container. And it's very similar on the like on an OS tree version, because essentially you have one layer that comes in and it's marked as read only, and then it will layer on top of that file systems that you can write to. So um, ETC, your user home directory, and maybe some other things depending on the operating system and bootloader stuff. These layers are written. So what it happens is it, it blasts down the read-only sections, and then it layers on top of that ETC and your home directory and the Grub directory or whatever bootloader you're using on top of that as um, read-write so that because obviously there are some things that will need to be stored persistently, but don't harm the system itself if you went and say nuke them. So somebody out here is listening to this and they're they're at this point in the conversation and thinking to themselves, well, that's great, Stephen Noah. That's absolutely fantastic. Great nerd discussion. But why do I care? So what would be the advantages to doing things like sandboxing root? So one of the biggest counters to not using an immutable operating system is the idea that, well, I just simply use the files in my home directory. And as long as I have that data backed up, I don't really care about the operating system. And to a certain extent, that's true. But the people that are saying these sort of things are also the technically inclined people. 
And so, <laughs> well, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Right? Sure. The, the people that are like, yeah, you know what? Reinstalling the operating system, you know, do that in an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the, the same people that are like, well, you know, I don't need an immutable operating system. And then a company that like Valve is like, well, yes, but I'm deploying this to I don't know how many uh, mm. hundreds of thousands of people that may or may not know how to reinstall an operating system. Maybe I don't want them to break mm-hmm. the fundamental thing and bear that support call. So one of the things I like about Endless is that it is read only and I can ship this off and like I can give it to my kid, say, have at it. Uh, and I don't need to worry about them breaking it. And as much as uh, my wife is leaning towards the technical side of things, things just break for her. And it's mm-hmm. really hard for an immutable operating system to just break because essentially it boots the same read-only image as the last 17,000 times it booted until you run an update. So there are absolutely reasons why you might care about deploying a read-only that is outside of you know caring for the data that's on the system itself. So somebody's listening to that and they're saying to themselves, so great, it's only for new users. I'm not a new user. I'm a power user. Where would the advantage for somebody who really understands the system, and you're one of those people that, I mean, you have referenced numerous times that even though you're a container guy, you build all your containers from hand because you want to understand down to the basic level how something is doing something. Why do you as a power user like an immutable operating system? I like the idea that, um, well, let me back up and say, one of the things I said in the kind of the introduction is that the update doesn't come down one at a time. Mm. And if you've been using any operating system, I don't care which one of them, an update somewhere along the line will have messed up. And then trying to unravel that, whether that's Windows, whether that's Linux, you know, I don't know how macOS does their stuff, whatever. Uh, they live in an island for all I care. But at some point, you've lived through dev dependency hell or RPM hell or, mm-hmm. you know, Windows EXE goes sideways on you or something like that. And that becomes very difficult because you get in a, in a weird update situation that you have to go and repair. That goes away for an immutable operating system. And you can just simply say, you know what? It messed up, reboot the box, and I'm done. Like, I don't have time to sort this around. Like, you know, if you're a friend of the show, Chris Fisher, and you're updating your machine right before you go live, maybe an immutable operating system's for you because then you can just reboot and get right back on the air. So there are definite advantages to having atomic updates, not to mention the fact that, um, how do I put this? Not every package gets updated as quickly as every other package. And so when you've got a maintainer that is specifically crafting an OS for all the pieces to go together, that is that is something powerful. You know, our BSD friends, um, in terms of how they ship their the whole operating system, they do have a leg up on us there. Oh, I'm so They're, glad you brought this up. You know, they ship their thing as a full, like, Spectrum, like notwithstanding some of the user applications, but they basically ship an entire operating system that is known to work together. And that's basically what the uh, OS tree helps you get to. So I'm so glad you touched on this. So almost every BSD user, if they're using BSD as a daily driver, one of the first things, the first thing they're going to tell you when you sit down and go, oh, that's interesting. You're using BSD. What do you like about it? One of the first things that's going to come out of their mouth is, I like that I can't break it. Everything just works, and I know I'm not going to break it because I'm free to try and play and experiment and do all of the technical, nerdy, geeky things that I'm naturally inclined to do. And if it doesn't work, I'll just roll back 
because that's what BSD allows me to do. And it's a big it, it has been a big thing for a long time in the BSD land. It was it has been a long time uh, a big thing in the land of ZFS. And as as Valve is doing it, maybe it's not a purple perfect implementation, you know, by textbook definition of immutability, but it accomplishes the same type of goal that we want a device that we can't break. And it allows us from the beginner side, us not to hurt ourselves based on our inexperience or knowledge gaps. And on the more experienced side, it allows us not to get hurt by way of we can experiment, try new things, uh, go out. The world is your oyster because you can always come back to a safe place of stability. I also like it from the from the perspective of it, it kind of shoehorns you into like flat pack or snaps or, mm-hmm. or one of those. And what I like about that is I, so I ran, I had an install of an operating system that just, I just rolled forward. I had nine years going and I had a, a game that I could not figure out for the life of me where it was pulling this one library. <laughs> and I could not find it on my system. And I had to basically, I, I finally just got fed up. I really wanted to play this game. And so I reinstalled after nine years of, of like nursing this this operating system through rolling releases. And that, that was kind of, I guess, a sense of pride. That wouldn't have happened for me in an immutable operating system because the application would not have been using system libraries and or it was probably something I did. Let's be mm-hmm. honest. I probably was tinkering around somewhere and did something silly with one of the libraries and I wouldn't have been able to do that. And so there is a level of uh, the ability to add and remove software that is ancillary to the operating system that you don't have to worry about whether or not removing it or adding it is going to jack up your system. Like I tinker around with Python all the time. And so half the time is like, well, if I do this by a pip or the the package manager, is this really going to do something terrible to my system? But, you know, you're kind of exemplifying our point, right? You're you're a person, you're a professional power user, and you're going to do things on the system because that's why you have the system is so that you can go in there and monkey with it. If you didn't want to do all that, you probably wouldn't refer to Apple as the, you know, the island of misfits, right? You would That would appeal to you. And so the whole idea there is you don't want to work with one hand tied behind your back. You want to dig in. You want to be the cook in the kitchen. The immutable operating system, if I'm understanding correctly, means that you can wear both hats. You can have your cake and eat it too. You can be the guy that tinkers. You can go in there, crawl under the hood, play all you want. At the end of the day, every one of these separate applications is going to be its own little sandboxed little world, and one never interferes with the other. Yep, you got it. Okay, so now we've got all of our apps, and we've got all of our apps installed, and we've got root immutable so that we can't accidentally damage it. That's fine and well, Steve. How do we store information outside of immutability? So just just like other operating systems. So like one of the things we're very familiar with in the Linux community is the idea of having uh, an operating system installed on a pen drive that has uh, a section that's carved off for persistence, right? Essentially, OS tree, while it doesn't do exactly that, uses that same philosophy where it takes a part of the hard drive and then allows you to, it turns that into a layer and then layers that back on top. So you can write to your home directory, you can write to uh, ETC in order to change like the configuration of some of the applications and stuff like that without affecting the rest of the operating system in that way. So at this point, you're probably asking yourself, either I'm a newbie or I'm an experienced sysadmin, but what are the practical ways 
that I can go about putting this into practice. So I had an opportunity to sit down at scale with uh, uh, Pietro DiCaprio from Fabricators and talk about a operating system called Vanilla OS. It's a mutable operating system for anyone, anyone from newbies all the way up to powerful sysadmins. Have a listen. Vanilla OS is an a Linux distribution that is immutable and wants to give you immutability in the simplest possible way. Okay, we are currently based on uh, Ubuntu, but we announced a few days ago that we are going to switch to um, Debian Seed as a base for multiple reasons. One of them, the last announcement about the snap thing on the Ubuntu flavors, transitional packages, but not going to talk about that, okay? So, uh, Vanilla wants to give you a simple and clean experience on Linux. Whether you are a new user, an enthusiast, a power user, you should feel comfortable in Vanilla OS. The theory says that with immutability, you shouldn't be able to break your system. Somehow, you should always be able to boot your computer and use it. We achieved this via AB root. It's our custom solution for immutability. Doesn't care about which file system you're running. Doesn't care about a bunch of stuff. It just uses two root partitions, called A and B, as the name suggests, and takes care about updating those read-only partitions. So, whenever you need to install system updates, drivers, and this kind of stuff that must be installed on the system, ABROOT runs an atomic transaction. That means if you go through a set of steps, you have to install multiple things, you have to do multiple checks, only once all of those are exited successfully, all the changes are committed to the disk, not to your current partition, but to the other one, your future partition. Then the grab entries are updated. When you are ready to reboot, grab takes you to the updated partition. So if you were running on A, AB root updated B, at the reboot you are going to boot in B. So. If everything goes fine, you are happy with the changes, that's it. Whenever, for any reason, you are not happy because, I don't know, something went wrong or something changed and you didn't expect that, no problem. You reboot, select the previous partition, that in this example is A, and you are back before the changes and you can start again from where you were. Those changes are basically only driver updates, system updates, and stuff like that. We invite users to never force the installation of software directly in the root. Indeed, sudo and apt command are not available. To install stuff, we suggest, we highly suggest Flatpak. We love Flatpak, we like how it works, takes care about dependencies, the coupling, allows you to save a lot of space, and is going to write not in the root partition, but in your home partition that is not under the immutability system. Provides sandboxing, a lot of features that we really, really like. Now, how do you get Flatpak? When you install Vanilla OS, the first thing that happens is that the first setup is shown to the user. The first setup makes suggestions and helps the user to make some choices. For example, the Flatpak option is already there selected. You can also enable app image, for example, but 
usually uh, a user that doesn't know what is happening just clicks always next and it's totally fine. But if you know something more, you can enable app image. You are asked for uh, NVIDIA proprietary drivers. If an NVIDIA card is detected, you are suggested for office stuff like LibreOffice and some other utility. Once you've done with those, those selections, uh, the first setup takes care of installing all the dependencies for you. So you can simply sit down, take a coffee. When it's done, the system reboots and you are ready to go. As previously said, SUD and, and APT are not available. What do you have is Apex. The syntax is APX, and then you follow what you always did with APT, basically. So it's going to be APX install package. This is going to be installed in a subsystem provided by DistroBox, and you are going to have this package installed in a container, and at the end of the installation, you are prompt for desktop entry. Do you want it? You press yes, and a, dis a desktop entry is created for you, so you can easily go in the GNOME activity and select the app and run it without any problem. So, about other distributions, well, Apex helps you also with that. For example, if you want to install anything from DNF, that's not a problem at all. It's as easy as APX install package-dnf, and you are going to get the package from DNF installed in a Fedora container managed by DistroBox. And again, you are asked for the desktop entry, so if you want it, you can have it. This means that in GNOME activity, you can have multiple options for the same app, for example. You can install multiple apps, the same app from multiple repositories, and still get all of them in the same operating system, thanks to this subsystem thing that we created with DistroBox. The newbie that is new to Linux and knows nothing can simply install Vanilla, click always next in the initial wizard, and he's ready to go because Gnome Software is there to provide you all the flatbacks thanks to FlatHub. You search anything, Discord, Mozilla, Spotify, whatever is available as a flatpak, and many apps are available. You find it, click install, and you, newbie, don't even know what's going on. You just know that you click and install like on your smartphone, and the application is there for you. And since it's installed in the home directory, the immutability thing doesn't take place. You don't even know what is going on. But if you want a bit more, if you are a more enthusiast, more expert, well, you can take advantage of Apex and do a bunch of stuff. You can develop on multiple operating systems with the single vanilla installation because you can install the dev tools on the Ubuntu container, on the Fedora one, on Arch, and build the application on different operating systems while remaining on vanilla OS. So the idea is vanilla should provide the best user experience possible, taking all the good stuff from all those uh, distributions and trying to avoid all the bad stuff of all those distributions. So we work really, really a lot on the user experience. This is what matters most for us. The user should just power on the PC and do whatever he did before using vanilla. So you can check out vanilla OS 1-855-450-NOAH-855-450-6624. You're on Ask Noah. Good evening. Hi there. Hi, uh, Steve and Noah. Um, my question for you guys is I'm in the process of deploying uh, some new servers for the office, and uh, typically we use 
um, VM or sorry, we use uh, Dell or HP servers. Okay. And um, I've been looking at Super Micros, and it seems like they could be a little bit more cost effective. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you guys have any experience with Super Micros. If you guys recommend them, I, some quick googling on Reddit. Some people say. Uh, you know the support. I mean, I'm I'm not looking for support anyways. Mm -hmm. uh, buying them refurbished anyways, but um, you know maybe I, I don't know if it's as easy to get parts. Like if there's a replacement needed, um, just want to know your guys' opinion on them. If you guys have encountered them, and yeah. uh, especially uh, specifically using them with Linux, uh, if you know if there's any gotchas. Steve, any thoughts? I have uh, three current super micros. One of them's running my NAS, and I've I've been running super micros for oh near on a decade and a half. Um, and I don't I don't run anything but Linux, so I have nothing but good things to say. I like their their um, IPMI implementation, and uh, yeah. I've, I've not had any problems with them. So I'm going to echo that. Uh, there was some concern a few years ago. There was some talk about perhaps maybe some security implications, but I've experienced none of that firsthand, and there was really nothing ever came out of it, nothing definitive that we could point to. Um, we sell Dell servers, and we're a Dell reseller, and so I have plenty of experience with Dell, but inside of my house, like Steve, my file server is running uh, is a super micro board. I've had nothing but excellent experience. I can also share with you that companies like IX Systems, they build all of their systems uh, with Supermicro. So I don't think you'll have any problem at all. I would feel 100% comfortable purchasing some Supermicro servers, save a little bit of money. You will not be disappointed with the quality or the support on Linux. Okay. And for, for something like a PBX, do you think I can, like is AMD Epics, are they, they're well supported on, on Linux? Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, just as a point of note, my PBX at my house is also running on a Supermicro. It's one of those little one U pizza boxes. Okay, awesome. Okay, well, thank you very much, guys. Yep, I appreciate the call. Music in our ears means we're out of time. Catch us at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Follow us on Twitter, at AskNoah. I'm Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. We'll see you next week, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.